0: I'm Mark Klobis, and welcome to the second podcast of Arguing History, where renowned historians meet to debate some of the key points in our past. 2017 is the quincentenary of the start of the Protestant Reformation, an event that transformed Christianity in the Western world. But was it an inevitable development, or one that might not have taken place? To discuss the question of whether the Protestant Reformation had to happen, we have joining us today two eminent historians of the event. The first is Peter Marshall, who is a professor of history at the University of Warwick, and the author and editor of numerous books on the Reformation, including the Oxford Illustrated History of the Reformation, Heretics and Believers, A History of the English Reformation, and most recently, 1517, Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation, which is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Peter, welcome to today's program. Thanks very much, Mark. Glad to be here. The second is Alec Ryrie who is the professor of the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Durham, and giving Peter a run for his money in the authoring and editing department. He is the, uh, among written other books, The Age of Reformation, which is now out in a second edition, being Protestant in Reformation Britain, and his newest book, Protestants, The Radicals Who Made the Modern World. Alec, welcome to the show. Okay, uh, so the Protestant Reformation, uh, did it have to happen? Well, long pause as as we both think about this. (laughs)
1: something was going to happen but
2: the the reformation as it if as as it comes out is a is a piling of of chance upon chance a whole series of of contingencies um you know the how we we get to the reformation that we had or anything that could be recognizably the protestant reformation i i think this is one that could have gone in Any number of different directions.
0: I'd like to start then by going back a bit to that that what you said at first, which was something had to happen, and I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that, and and then maybe uh, that that we could kind of expand it a bit to more of that you know general conversation bring both of you in. What, What do you mean by something had to happen?
2: Just in the sense that. The the Western Church, right through the Middle Ages, had had a series of of movements for reform and renewal within itself, and you know the, the, this is is happening each century from you know certainly from the the tenth eleventh century onwards. These these major reforming movements, and the the genius of the Western Church is that it had always been able to contain these these movements within its 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 overarching. Structure, and you can see that there's the makings of another such movement gathering force in the in, in the late fifteenth, early sixteenth century, and a lot of that is what goes into what we now call the Catholic Reformation or the Counter Reformation. Although that, that, as it eventually happened, is, is also shaped a great deal by by its its interaction with the with the Protestant movement. So you can imagine an alternative history in which there would have been a, a major reform movement of the time, but which would have been contained within the Catholic structure. What I think isn't inevitable is that you would have had the kind of violent rupture that, that you do, in which a significant part of the continent breaks out of communion with Rome.
1: Well, I'm, I'm kind of worried we may end up agreeing here in a, in a show called... Uh... Arguing, arguing history, um, because I'm pretty much on board with, with all of that. I mean, picking up Alex's point about how something had to happen, I mean, he's completely right that something had always been happening. And, w- and one of the fallacies, I think, when people look at the Reformation is to imagine a kind of placid, unchanging world of Catholic traditionalism before the Reformation changes everything and moves, starts moving us towards modernity. There had been Reformation in Christian history since the apostolic times themselves. And Um, major movements in the 10th century, uh, 12th century, the appearance of the uh, orders of friars, evangelical preachers in in the 13th century. So in a sense, there's nothing new about the desire for reformation, reformatio, as churchmen of the time would have have called it. I guess... sort of redefining the problem for us is what we're thinking about is why did this particular one end up becoming the Reformation with a definite article, the one that we look back on and see as an absolute turning point, a fork in the road in the history of Western Christianity. Um, And a lot of it, I'm sure, is down to chance. And I guess as, as historians, we're always rather uncomfortable with the idea that anything is inevitable. So maybe a better question is, was it likely and was it likely that it would go in the particular directions that it ended up going, um, and I guess because we 're going to end up talking about this anyway let 's go straight to it and i 'll throw this at Alec to see what what he thinks. Um, the figure of Martin Luther um, is Luther crucial? Um, would there have been a reformation without Luther? Um, are we here thinking about great individuals as the real motors of history? Um, or as Tolstoy said about Napoleon, is he just someone sort of floating along on the currents of deeper movements?
2: I'm, I'm enough of a traditional historian to be to be slightly spooky of the great individual as the <laughs> as the motor of history. But I am willing to go with the the great idea as a motor of history. Um, you know, great, not necessarily saying that, that that you agree with it, but as a, a set of ideas which managed to capture the imagination of of enough people at the time. I mean, you know, Luther, Luther is is an academic who who has a bright idea, and academics are having bright ideas the whole time. The, what's what's remarkable remarkable about this one is the way that it catches that the the set of of ideas which Luther crystallizes you know he takes a lot of things that are, that are out there already and combines them in a way that nobody has quite done before but which fits enough into the 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 mindsets and assumptions of the time that it makes sense to people once they've grasped it to an awful lot of people it seems self evidently true i I've, I've compared it before to the impact of ideas like darwinism or marxism in the 19th century they these are are people who've managed to take ideas from the ether and and combine them in a new way that makes instinctive sense to a huge number of people at the time and once people have made that sort of leap then it does appear to change the world that that they live in but then i I think this is to a large extent about ideas. And one of the things that makes the Reformation such an extraordinary event is, uh, it it seems to me that theology unavoidably drives a lot of these these
0: events. Um, If I could interject, though, there's a dimension that I was wondering both you could explore before we go more fully into Luther himself, which is that, as both of you made clear, you have these reforms sort of pulsing through the history of the Church in the Middle Ages. Perhaps then the question is, why then wasn't the Protestant Reformation in essence, contained within the church. What was different about the church in the start of the 16th century that wasn't true in the 12th century, the 13th century, the 14th century, when you have these events taking place, but changing the church from within, maybe a few bursts out of it. What was different by 1500 that wasn't true in, say, 1050 or 1150?
1: Well, there there are a couple of possible answers to that. Um, One is a bit of a cliché, but clichés are sometimes correct, um, and that is the relatively new technology of printing, uh, which had been around for a while. It's not a brand new technology. Books have been printed in Germany with movable types since the 1450s. But nonetheless, Luther's academic, um, what were academic ideas, which, as Alex said, catch the imagination of a wider public, Public, um, which would not have circulated in the same way or to the same extent or at the same speed one hundred years earlier, are pretty widely circulated pretty quickly because of the possibilities of printing so that 's one kind of structural answer uh, another I suppose is the political makeup of um, Germany, I guess what we used to call nationalism or, or state building i 'm a little skeptical about this, but that 's always been part of the answer that The the new theology, which Alec was talking about, actually kind of catches a particular political moment um, where um, uh, states are forming in Germany, which uh, need this kind of ideology to uh, assert their independent control. Um, The other and and I guess more cynical or skeptical answer is back just to the idea of, of contingency, that it needn't have turned out this way that Luther might well have been arrested, tried, and executed, and the whole thing would have been a bit of a sort of bumpy episode, um, but might have been smoothed over. And, you know, had Charles V not been a man of his word, um, and uh, had Luther arrested and tried after the Diet of Worms, as had happened with the uh, great previous reformer, Jan Hus, who'd been offered a safe conduct to the Council of Constance, but was nonetheless arrested and burned, uh, then things might have, have kind of turned out differently. So, you know, once again, I think, you know, we're we're struggling over the balance between these issues of of contingency chance uh, and deeper historical forces.
0: I I guess my question is more along the lines of why, you know, we, we talk about how Luther would have been tried and convicted. I was thinking of the alternative that, of all people, Kingsley Amos once proposed of how, why didn't he potentially at some point hypothetically become Pope or in the sense of the way that the reformers of the Gregorian revolution eventually became the institution of the church. And, and the church basically embraced what was happening uh, and, 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 uh, as maybe not uh, eagerly, but perhaps uh, uh, accepting the necessity of it.
2: I, I think for that, you know, to some extent, you can't avoid questions of, 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 of individual character that that would have involved a suppleness and willingness to compromise. Which we really don't see in Luther, I don't think at, at, at any at any point in his career. But there, I think he is parallel to some of the the medieval uh, movements that we've been that we've been talking about, because alongside those movements that are assimilated by by the church and become part of its renewal, there are also those running, again, running right through the Middle ages which which are frozen out. Um, and 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 indeed burned out, um, I mean the most famous is is the attack on um, Albigensianism Catharism, in in France and northern Italy um in the in the twelfth thirteenth century but equally there 's the 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 lollards in in England the Hussites in Bohemia, where you know, similar theology although very different outcomes in in those two cases so there there are Previously, been cases where some movements have been brought in, others have have fallen out. Some, like the Franciscans, really seem to teeter on the edge before um, falling falling one side or the other. You can see a situation in which, and there are real attempts to make this happen in the 16th century, in which maybe Luther himself and you know his his you know, particular adherents are are left on the outside, but a large part of his movement and of its ideas are co-opted. And so you might have had a a renewed and expanded Catholicism, which takes on board a lot of what this new wave of reformers are saying, even if Luther himself is, is too stubborn to become part of that sort of cooperation. And I imagine one of the things that we may be coming on to talk about is what those movements for a potential compromise um, in the sort of second quarter of the 16th century could have potentially led to, if anything.
1: Well, I, I think that's that's absolutely right, and and the key thing about Luther is he is um, <laughs> he is just not a compromiser. Um, this is perhaps an unfortunate analogy, but you know, one thinks of Donald Trump, somebody who never admits <laughs> to being wrong, will never say sorry, um, and and in some ways is not an admirable trait. But but on the other hand, I mean, Luther's courage under extraordinary pressures and his ability um, from a modern point of view, I think an admirable ability to stand up and tell the great and good of the world that they're completely wrong um, uh, is, is pretty admirable. Um, uh, and I think it goes further than that, actually, that um, one can see a kind of, uh, again, it's a word with rather unfortunate modern connotation, so I'll use it cautiously. One can see the radicalization of Luther in a relatively short period of time between... 1517, um, when he may be, although I think probably doesn't, uh, post up 95 theses to the door of the castle church in, in Wittenberg. Um, and I think still at that stage, um, perhaps pretty radical, but nonetheless, a reformer broadly within the Catholic mainstream, to just. Just three short years later, uh, when he has pretty much torn up the rulebook of much of medieval theology, um, has publicly burned the canon law and the Pope's denunciation of him um, in a bonfire in Wittenberg and denounced the Pope as Antichrist. And uh, partly that has happened because he's been radicalized by opposition and confrontation. So in a sense, if there'd been compromise on the other side, <laughs> um, if uh, the, the church authorities had actually listened to Luther's prophetic Critique that might be another way in which this could have led in a different direction and been contained
0: was that, was that even in the cards
1: i gosh i don't i don 't think so it 's partly because of uh, of the messiness of the issue itself, the indulgence that Luther protests about, which in the grander sort of theological scheme of things, is pretty minor it 's sort of you know one aspect, one small aspect of. Uh, one aspect of the church's teaching on penance. But nonetheless, and here a sort of traditional um, um, uh, rather disapproving Protestant history is absolutely right, this is all pretty disreputable. Um, Indulgences have become uh, monetized or commercialized, uh, and this particular indulgence is very much tied up uh, with the financial and political interests of the Pope and of Luther's Superior in Germany, Archbishop Albrecht of Mainz, so, in a sense, for financial and political reasons there 's really nowhere the authorities are going to back down on this issue and say that Luther was absolutely right, even though mainstream Catholic theology today and I think for some time pretty much does think that Luther was right
2: but what makes that issue so potentially explosive is that you know as, as peter says there 's a wide sense of of unease about it 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 feels icky you know it it doesn't fit with the the kind of new spirituality that's 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 coming up especially across northern europe um and so there's a, a widespread sense of of unease with it which means that when luther appears making a public critique of it people are ready to hear that but what luther does with it is much more radical than than most other people are are willing to um, and so for him, this is a, a loose thread from the, the garment of, of Catholic piety, and he pulls at it, and he pulls at it, and he pulls at it, and the whole thing starts to come to pieces. But he's able to take people with him to a surprising, at a surprising distance because the initial critique itself seems so reasonable.
0: I was thinking about how quickly it evolves from the 95 Theses to statements he's making just a year later, which he's uh, gone from being very respectful, uh, playing to uh, the Pope's status to where he's really starting to make those points that uh, become part of this broader critique of it. Uh, the church, church itself, itself uh, though they, uh, they uh, and, and as you're pointing out, though we, we, we've been talking about the agency of Luther, you've also talked about some of these other personalities. There, there, there's there's Johann Tetzel the. Uh, uh, indulgent seller. There's, there's uh, Albrecht, uh, and 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 they have. And, and so, in, in a sense, you, you're, there's that a dimension of not just Luther's personality, but all these other ones. Was were any of them bendable in, 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 uh, in this controversy? At, at least at the in the early stages, like fifteen seventeen, fifteen eighteen,
1: fifteen nineteen. Ah, well, yeah. <laughs> there are certainly a, a series to pretty strong personalities bumping into uh, each other. Unfortunately or unfortunately, um, Luther meets very early with a very talented opponent um, in the person of, of Johann Eck, a Catholic theologian who he debates at Leipzig in, in, in 1519, and Many historians now think that actually um, Eck rather gets the better of that debate with, with, with Luther, argues him into some corners, arguably, um, in fact, forces Luther to see that his position actually is more radical than perhaps he realized that, that it was. And yeah, that um, some of the the hopes of redress that he had, for example, appealing from the Pope to the authority of a general council of the church, something which had always been uh, a kind of hope of Catholic reformers in, in the past uh, may indeed be a, be a dead end and that the only form of authority uh, that the Christian can really rely upon is the authority of, of Scripture it, it itself. Um, so, uh, yeah, that the, the kind of compromise by everybody sitting down and having a nice cup of tea, I think was probably... Is probably not going to not going to, to to happen. But I mean, something that I think is worth saying here, although it's a kind of obvious point, but it, it's it's worth repeating, um, is that Luther is not a Protestant. Um, it's not a word he, he knew or heard or or, or really used about himself. Um, he only retrospectively comes to be seen as the founder of Protestantism. Just as as we're saying at the start of the discussion, the definite article there only retrospectively, and indeed some considerable time later gets added to this movement for, for reformation. So we're, we're actually looking at a quarrel within the Catholic Church of the late Middle Ages among Catholics. And I think that absolutely speaks to Alex's point as to you know, why Luther's ideas um, actually strike a chord with so many people. It's in some ways not because they're radically new, but because they're deeply familiar. And that Luther, a friar from a reform order of austere friars seems to be representing the best of catholic spirituality which people instinctively aspire towards
2: i think this is really important that the the eventual outcome of this process which kind of seems natural to us because we're so familiar with the story that western Christendom should split into you know rival competing confessions geographically organized is is what nobody wants and nobody expects. Um, I mean, amongst Luther's movement, there are those who expect that they're going to to take the whole church and that there are those who expect that they're going to be crushed by the forces of Antichrist. But, petition, but partition, but a partition in, in the sense that eventually happens is, is an unforeseeable outcome. And although there's celebration happening this year, especially amongst Lutheran churches of, of the reformation process as it as it unfolds. Um I think we have to recognize that from from Luther's point of view, it's it's a disaster, it's a defeat, that only a relatively small area of 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 Western Christendom embraces his reforms, that that the church is permanently split. That there is this this moment, this you know these, these few years of, of fluid excitement in in the early 1520s when it looks like something more pervasive and, and wide reaching would be would be possible and it's effectively killed it seems to me that it's it's killed above all by the, the huge rebellion that breaks out across Germany in in the mid1520s and and the consequences of that the political crackdown that that follows that and that's that leads us into a world where where Christendom becomes permanently split
0: so just to make sure i understand your point then is that to see the protestant reformation as a split that begins in 1517 or 1519 or even say 1521 22 is a sort of a retrospective reading upon it and that potentially up to that point it, the fluidity suggests that there was a possibility that Christendom could have gone uh, maybe not necessarily the exact route that Martin Luther charted, but definitely in more with a greater acknowledgement of what it was he was proposing or discussing.
2: Yeah, there's, there's certainly that, that hope to, to, to reform the, the whole church of Christ. Um uh, that's complicated because Luther's movement also always has a, to use an anachronistic word, nationalistic quality to it. There's there's something specifically German about about what he's doing, and the extent to which he's become a German national icon is 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 not an accident. But he certainly has an eye on the the you know the wider um, you know, the, the, the international. Not quite too early to say global implications of of what he's doing, um, and his Augustinian order, the order of friars to which he belongs, becomes a significant vector for transmitting his ideas across the whole of Western Christendom.
1: Well, I, I fear I'm going to agree absolutely with Alec here here again. Unfortunately, we're absolutely not. But um, I mean. Uh, again trying to sort of move beyond modern assumptions the the, the celebration of separate identities and, and the valuing uh of of, of difference um uh, which is part of uh you know, our modern assumptions it's it's part of the commemorations um in 2017 for the the anniversary of the reformation even within uh, a broader umbrella of a humanism and warm relations between these separate christian identities this was absolutely nobody's intention um and indeed it's the tragedy of the reformation and the participants in that drama uh, saw it as as the tragedy they ended up many of them thinking it was a kind of inevitable uh, tragedy um but schism, uh, the, the rending of the body of Christ, was something that appalled everybody. They all thought it was the other side's fault, but um, none of them celebrated it as, as a good in itself. I mean, it is worth remembering that the word Catholic, of course, uh, comes from a Greek word meaning meaning universal, it, it um, represents uh, the, an ideal of unity. Um, the belief in the, uh, the Catholic Church is uh, affirmed in the ancient Nicene Creed, which pretty much all mainstream Christians, modern Catholics and Protestants, uh, re- recite. Um, so, so the great result of the Reformation, which is the turning of a sort of differentiated unity or universalism uh, into uh, sharp, distinctive pluralism, uh, is pretty much its most obvious result, and I suppose one could debate whether that had benefits as as well as disadvantages. But I do think that we need to recognise that that outcome was one that nobody planned or intended.
2: And having, I, I think that that's absolutely right. But maybe just in an attempt to in, in, interject some controversy here, I'm becoming slightly uneasy with the the, the story that um, we're 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 spinning of a kind of potentially happy consensual outcome, which through a a series of of accidents fails to to take place. I mean, there are a series of accidents, but it does seem to me there are some some deep forces pushing towards the sort of of, of, of outcome that that we reach. It's true that there are these series of reform movements through the, the medieval period. But there's a progression in them as well. They, they, these are often moving out from little circles of holiness in the monasteries, then moving out to embrace wider and wider swathes of society out into the, the, the general clergy and then out into the, into the laity. And a lot of what Luther is doing is claiming that sort of, of wider participation um, once again. And that sort of progressive reform and widening of the circle is on a kind of collision course with the determination, the responsibility of the church to to maintain the bounds of orthodoxy um, and where necessary to police them. And you can see that the particular crisis that breaks from 1517 onwards could have been contained. It could very well have been contained but I wonder if those competing impulses would eventually have smacked up against one another and have done so in a way that would have been very difficult to institutionalise. Because, I mean, what what's very striking about Luther's movement from the beginning is that almost as soon as it started, it's no longer Luther's movement. It's, it's immensely plural. There are a, a cacophony of, of competing voices on a broadly reformist side. The the broad set of movements in Switzerland and southern Germany that eventually get grouped together under the umbrella of Calvinism is the best-known alternative. But there are a a, a whole swathe of radicals um, who now often get lumped together rather unhelpfully as Anabaptists. They're an extremely diverse set of of groups. Um, In the event the Protestants manage to clump together into these two or three big groups, but it's the, the pluralism of that movement. It's, 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 I think, inherent tendency to head off in dozens of directions at once that seems to be one of its most pervasive qualities, and that, I think, is something that really is incompatible with the, the Catholic aspirations of, of the church as we know it. Um, from From the late medieval period and and, and and indeed thereafter, if the church had reformed in such a way as to be able to embrace and manage that sort of explosion of diversity, then I think it would have ended up as 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 something unrecognizable so i'm now starting to argue that maybe a Reformation crisis of some kind may have been inevitable that the attempts to keep. The lid on this sort of diversity, especially in an age of print, were, was, was, was likely to fail sooner or later.
1: The lid now- on one of the. Go ahead, Peter. Sorry, I was. And say One, one of the, um, the, the ironies of this, and, and I think Alec is, is, is right that we shouldn't uh, start suggesting it was all a sort of terrible mistake which could have been headed off had people only been a bit more, more reasonable, um, is it, to remind ourselves, of course, that it is not simply uh, the, the Protestant movements broadly which are created and transformed in this period and by what we, we, we call the Reformation. I know that the, the heading for, for this discussion was the Protestant Reformation, but um, many historians now prefer not to use that adjective alongside Reformation. Reformation to get across the idea that Christianity across Western Europe uh, is transformed in the 16th and, and 17th centuries. Um, and uh, the, the non-breaking away parts, i.e. those parts of, of, of the church uh, and of Christians in the West, indeed numerically a, a majority, uh, who stick with the Pope, uh, reform in a very different direction, um, become rather more centralized, um, both doctrinally and institutionally rather more contained, Um, not to say that uh, the energies of the laity and the spiritual aspirations of the laity don't have outlets and are are suppressed in what we used to call the Counter-Reformation Church, Um, quite quite the opposite. Um, But this is is clearly a reaction uh, to the kind of fragmentation um, that uh, Alec was was just talking about. So I think modern Catholicism uh, is just as much a product of the Reformation processes as modern um, Protestantism is. And so we're we're really talking about counterfactuals within counterfactuals (laughs) here. If there had been some kind of of containment um, uh, and uh, the, the Catholic Church had remained in an institutional and a broadly cultural sense united, it would not look like 20th century or, or even 21st century Roman Catholicism, it would look like something very different, I think.
0: If I may draw from uh, what both of you are presenting here, it, it, you're both, in essence, giving us a picture of a, of a religious sentiment, uh, views, beliefs that are sort of building up to a Not necessarily a a pressure point where it's bound to explode, but one in which Luther serves as removing the lid, Uh, that a lot of this stuff is building and bubbling, and that what Luther does is let it out in a way that not even he had really planned for, and after that point, it really goes beyond any one person's control, even beyond one institution's control, and – then takes all the various directions that it does over the sixteenth, seventeenth, right down to the twenty-first century.
1: Yes, I think is the the short answer <laughs> to, to that. Absolutely, um, uh, L- Luther is the catalyst for, for this. That's 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 absolutely right. The extent to which he is the cause, uh, we've talked about, and and, and could be. Uh, debated. Um, and I agree with Alec absolutely that uh, a lot of people find um, justification by faith a, a compelling idea, a spiritually um, uh, a compelling notion which, which solves many of their individual crises. But um, I also strongly suspect that in the 16th century, as in the 21st century, most people, uh, perhaps even most relatively seriously minded Christians, don't have that firm a grasp on doctrinal ideas. It can't just be that the idea seems a really kind of good one that that explains the waves of support that the Luther Luther receives. Um, there, there is clearly um, resentments uh, against the institution of the church and and, and the power of the, the clergy in certain respects. That's an old-fashioned view, but I think that has quite a lot to to recommend it. Um, The nationalism, slightly anachronistic term, but let's use it anyway, the nationalism Alec referred to, uh, I think is quite crucial here. Um, uh, The situation of Germany was was particular because of its political fragmentation. Uh, The the Italian papacy had um, a greater control of many of the levers and institutions of the church than it did elsewhere, and so, ironically, the places where Protestantism uh, almost does least well are the places where kings can very smoothly take over almost complete control of the church um, without uh, without the papacy making too much of a fuss of it. I mean, the, the, the Spanish monarchs um, are a case in, in point here. I mean, Spain is famous for remaining the most orthodox and zealous bastion of Catholicism throughout this, this period. But the Pope has pretty little say in what goes on inside the Spanish church, and even less say in what goes on inside the Spanish empire, where all the bishops are, are appointed by, by the crown. And the famous Spanish Inquisition is an institution over which the papacy has almost literally no control, that is, set up by and responsible to the Spanish monarchy.
2: I think this is a really important point that one of the, the Peter was talking about the effects of the reformation across the peace. And one of the the clearest effects that it has is to break the political power of the papacy, uh, which, which had been a, you know, a very substantial political player um, you know, through the Middle Ages, less so after the, the, the great schism in the late 14th, early 15th century, but still. But the schism At the Reformation, when it becomes, you know, a choice is effectively imposed on princes and kings across Europe. Which side are they going to back? And that means that their loyalty is up for auction. Um, Many of them, as as Peter was saying, the Spanish, the most obvious, choose to to remain in the in the Catholic fold, in communion with the Pope and they'll continue to pay lip service to his authority, but their loyalty has to be bought. Um, and the Pope is no longer in a position to resist what demands they, they might make. Um, or you can take the Henry VIII approach, uh, and simply use this as an opportunity to nationalize the assets of, of the church within your territory, declare it directly under your own control. Um, that has a, a certain directness to it which the spanish approach doesn't but in terms of the realities of day-to-day control except on certain legal matters the the difference is not all that great
1: then i mean it- another thing i think that that, that that happens is that the papacy itself and the meaning of the papacy uh, for both its supporters and its enemies is very profoundly transformed um mm-hmm. i mean the the, the the pre-Reformation papacy is is famously and rightly um, rather um, uh, excoriated for its its moral laxness um, and and being generally uh, uninspiring, borgia popes and all the rest of it. Um, but you know the papacy is is a legal office. It uh, it oils the wheels of jurisdiction in the church. Um, a lot of very serious. minds. Catholics like Thomas More in England um, think that it's a, you know, it's a kind of necessary thing, maybe even a sort of necessary evil, not necessarily um, uh, an institution of direct divine um, creation, but but nonetheless a very useful and important thing for for the church. Um, But um, Catholics in their attitudes, the papacy are, to use that word again, somewhat radicalized. By the Re- Reformation's attack on it and by the, the, the cultural and theological importance for Protestants of the papacy representing Antichrist, the, the incarnate principle of opposition to, to true faith. So, you know, whether one sees the Reformation as the sort of tragedy of, of the papacy or, a, or a, its kind of salvation, the liberation of popes not to have to uh, be worried all the time about these um, uh, jurisdictional matters, but to concentrate on giving more a kind of evangelical moral leadership, um, and as a result to become more, more central to the spiritual lives of many Western Christians, is a very moot point, I think.
2: Uh, one of the most extraordinary things about the long Reformation process, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm not enough of a, of a historian of the, of, of the Catholic Reformation to know what the answer to, to this is, as to how it happened, um, But one of the most unpredictable developments is the extent to which the papacy rises to the challenge. Um, that's that's offered to it and is able to to seize uh, the the opportunity of the the Catholic Reformation and to renew its its moral authority. The point at the at the end of the Council of Trent, this this great reforming council that meets intermittently across the the Catholic Council that meets intermittently across the middle of the sixteenth century, when it it becomes clear that the success or failure of this council is going to hinge on the papacy's willingness to reform itself from within and truly to embrace the sort of of moral renewal that its most earnest internal critics are pressing. And there's an awful lot of scepticism that it's going to do so, and and it does. The the transformation in the moral atmosphere of the papacy from the, the, the sort of... You know theatrical depravity that, that Peter was talking about which is associated with uh, with the, the, the late Renaissance papacy um, to the, the, the tremendously energetic and and sometimes austere movements for renewal that are, are driving the papacy forward by the late 16th century is is a, a really remarkable transformation and either it seems to me that there's a, a counterfactual that one can easily imagine in which that did not take place. Um, and then the extent and success of the of the Catholic fight back against Protestantism that takes place from the mid 16th through to the early 18th century would would have
0: would have gone in a very different way. And that gets to your well, point. I, I, oh, go ahead, Peter.
1: No, I was going to. I was just going to say I think that's that's right, and uh, I'd never really sort of had the thought in this form before, but. Um, ironically, I think you can see the papacy as one of the great winners of the Reformation crisis. And, and the Council of Trent, which Alec referred to, which is, um, as everybody, I think, knows at, at the heart of this movement, we call the Catholic Reformation or, or, or the Counter-Reformation. I mean, very nearly doesn't happen. Uh, because popes had always been terrified of, of councils. Councils were the great rivals to papal authority. That in the fifteenth century, the so-called conciliar movement uh, had established a very different model for how the churches uh, should, uh, uh, how the church should be run. And, and going back to what we were talking about a little while ago about ways in which this could have been contained, and um, uh, unity could have been reestablished established um, in the, the um, early and mid part of the 16th century. I mean, the, the, the council of the church is what is looked to uh, as the great salvation. Uh, so there are calls for a reforming council, which would meet some of the reasonable demands of the Lutherans, marriage for the clergy, communion in two kinds for the laity, some kind of movement doctrinally on the question of justification. Um, It was not impossible that that could have happened. There are discussions between Lutheran and Roman Catholic theologians in the early 1540s, which do manage to kind of hash out um, uh, an agreed statement on on justification. But in the end, the council that happens happens is not a council, it's not a unifying council, it's a, it's a divisive council, um, and it's one that the papacy manages uh, in, to keep complete control of and to bend to its own purposes. And and so that rivalry between council and Pope um, has never really recurred within Catholicism. And, and the subsequent um, great general councils of, of the church, the First Vatican Council in the 19th century, the um, Second Vatican Council in the 1960s have worked
0: very closely with the papal agenda. I wonder though if that might represent the point at which the separation becomes permanent because to what degree does the notion of papal authority become such a defining attribute of this growing movement of Protestantism to where you could have concession theoretically on so many other aspects of theology. But when it comes to that aspect of church governance, that's when people basically, the the Protestants, you know, push back from the table and walk away because they've decided, you know, or in a sense, they've been radicalized to the point where they just are unwilling to concede that degree of authority that the Pope has now established for themselves,
2: I, I think that's right. But I think it goes even deeper than that. I, the, the moment that Peter was talking about this this great colloquium uh, that happens at Regensburg in in fifteen forty one, when it, it you know, for a moment, it seems like there there might be a reconciliation, and it seems clear that on many of the doctrinal issues, especially justification, which had had kicked the whole thing off. There's there is scope for for reasonable and creative theologians on both sides to find enough common ground that they can carry on having the conversation. And some of the the brightest minds on both sides of this debate are are, are very keen to do that and can, can clearly deal with each other. But there are some doctrinal issues, um, including by that stage the the, the, the nature of the of, of the Eucharist, of, of, of the the Mass, the Communion, the Last Supper, uh, the Lord's Supper. Nobody can can agree what even to call this sacrament, which is part of the problem. That's one of the things which that conference founders on. But the other is the nature of the authority of the Church. Um, the papacy is the is the most prominent symbol for that. But by this stage. The Protestants, in in general, that that broad quarrelsome group, who many of whom detest each other as much as they, as, as as they might detest the the Pope's Church, um, have moved away from any notion of the Church collectively, whether through a Pope or a Council, being able authoritatively to determine truth. Um, that Peter was mentioning earlier the, the disputation at Leipzig in 1519, in, in 15, which I tend to think is one of the key moments, because that's the point where Luther rejects the authority of the general council and says, no, it's simply his reading of scripture, and nobody is able to compel his conscience. That doesn't make Luther the sort of prophet of modern individualism that he's sometimes taken to be, but you can draw a line from from there to here there is a an insistence on the sovereignty of the believer's conscience before god unable to be to be bound by or to relinquish its responsibilities to any authority figure within the church so nobody's able to to declare what orthodoxy is and it's that inability to contain doctrinal disagreement within any sort of wall, within any kind of clear structure, that that really makes the, the Protestants impossible to deal with. Um, you can't strike an agreement with these people because somebody's going to turn around and say, well, no, but my conscience, my reading of Scripture, my encounter with God tells me, tells me something different. Um, and so even if a deal had been made— as we've found throughout the history of Protestantism, any time there are attempts to, to reunite the, the different factions, it only leaves more on the outside refusing to, 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 to accept the, the compromise that's being imposed on them and instead pursuing the purity of, of their own consciences. And that's a process which I, I find it very hard to see how that could have been stopped
1: well ju- just in in the hope of starting a bit of a fight with 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 alec yeah <laughs> um uh because i'm worried slightly just slightly that in a, we're getting a very sophisticated version uh of of the idea that that protestantism really is um, the, the starting point of a kind of modern sense of of, of the free uh, liberal conscience. I mean, the one thing that we um, w- the debates about whether uh, Luther says at the Diet of Worms, "Here I stand, I can do no other," um, but we do know that he said, "My conscience is captive to the word of God." Um, mm-hmm. And the nature of authority, Alec is absolutely right about this uh, is really the heart of the Reformation debate. You know, the other things are all kind of subsets of that uh, in, in in a way. Um, People often say, my own students say it, and I have to try and sort of bring them round from this, that, uh, of course, what Protestants really thought was that people should read the Bible for themselves and make up their own minds what it meant. Uh, now, uh, they did not, or, or certainly Luther, did not believe that that at all. Um, the, the authority of Scripture is paramount. Um, but the interpretation of Scripture is not up for grabs. Scripture is is self-interpreting. Uh, any right-minded person, Luther and Calvin and other thought uh, who uh, read the Bible with the right spirit and was not corrupted by popish superstition would not be in any doubt as to what to believe. Um, Of course, historically it didn't work out like that and there were large numbers of people who looked at the Bible and said, well, I'm not entirely sure I can get the doctrine of the Trinity out of these texts, or where does it say that we should baptize infants rather than baptize adults, as Christ himself seems to have have done. Um, So a kind of plurality of interpretation um, and, and here I do agree with, with, with Alec, which is uh, at, at the heart of Protestantism, uh, as it kind of works out as, as a movement, um, does sort of accidentally <laughs> lead to the pluralism, relativism, and uh, eventually, very eventually, tolerance of, of parts of the, the modern world. Um, but it wasn't hardwired into uh, Luther's brain or, or the plans of, of any of his uh, uh, leading allies or rivals. I think that that's absolutely right.
2: And I'm going to mix my metaphors horribly. It's not hardwired into Luther's brain, but I think it is baked into his movement um, in the sense that this is you know, he he doesn't want people to, to read the Bible um, and make up their mind as to what it says. He wants them to read the Bible for themselves and see what it says. Because yep. what it says is, is is plain and is 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 going to be clear to any right-thinking person at, who's appropriately guided by their more educated theological betters, and Luther's always very insistent on the status that he has as a doctor of theology, and that 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 gives him a right to pronounce as to on scripture's meaning, which. You know, very few other, uh, others in the reforming movement have, as far as he's concerned. Um, so, yes, he thinks that the, you know, the, there's this great doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, that the meaning should be clear to every believer. But that does mean that you are empowering every believer to to, to read it. And because so many people, so many different reformers, believe that their particular reading of scripture is self-evidently true <laughs> they are all empowering people to to discover their particular self-evident truth in it and the fact that they are failing to find the same self-evident truth is is plain from the very beginning and indeed as you know by 1520 1521 you have radical voices insisting that actually you can only reach that true meaning when aided by the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or when the Spirit is able to 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 add to or lead your your interpretation of of the text uh, um, himself. So, although clearly yes, they all want to insist that the, the the meaning is straightforward, but that's what opens the space for 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 plurality, and it's the Catholic insistence, the correct insistence, that you. Know, you know, simply as a matter of observable fact, um, the, the interpretation of scripture is not straightforward and self evident because of the diversity of readings that, that, that come up, which is why you have Catholic polemicists right through the period saying you need to have an authority which is able to discern the true interpretation and decide on that orthodoxy for the whole of Christendom. It's the Protestant insistence that no such authority is necessary that the, the insistence which i you know, appears to be factually wrong um that creates a world in which this huge number of competing self-evident truths uh, appear uh gentlemen
0: uh concluding thoughts
1: <laughs> well um <laughs> i think yeah i mean it sounds like the position we we've both kind of um come to well a number of positions we we we've both come to um uh, but I suppose could be summed up by saying that the, the Reformation is, is perhaps history's preeminent I- example of the law of unintended consequences. Uh, and further to that, the things that are kind of worst about the Reformation, um, its divisiveness, its querulousness, um, its uh, d- destruction of traditions of community and unity, are uh, these are paradoxically also the things which are best about the, the, the Reformation, because um, it is hard to imagine many of the things which we do value uh, in the modern West and which Christians as well as other people value in, in the modern West, um, which is uh, the, the possibility of living honestly with difference. Um, those are legacies of the Reformation, unintended perhaps, but, but, but real and valuable.
2: I I think that's entirely fair. I mean, Peter mentioned tolerance earlier, which is is usually a word that Reformation historians are, are, are wary of mentioning in, in connection with the Reformation, because while it's I, I, I think it's unmistakably true that the Reformation process leads us eventually to a point where the principle of of religious toleration becomes widely accepted it takes an awful long time to get there and a very roundabout route. And it, eventually it's, it seems to me to get there by a process of, of exhaustion <laughs> that, they, that the, the, the different confessions have tried every other alternative and are eventually forced to admit that they're not going to succeed in wiping each other out and that the only thing that they can do is is learn to live with one another. Uh,
0: suppose <laughs>
2: The 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 point that I want to, to emphasize, which I keep you know, stressing to to students, is in some ways how alien this world is to to our own. Um, I, both believers and non-believers in our own time find the the centrality of well of God to this process. <laughs> Difficult to, to to grasp, not just in the sense of of theology, um, which as as we've been suggesting may not have percolated very far um, beyond the the learned circles in which it's taken most seriously, but in terms of the lived experience of of religion, there are political and social and economic and cultural issues tied up with this. But what makes the Reformation story so extraordinary is that. I think this really is a case of a 200-year a convulsion, a continent set by the ears and you know, struggles and turmoil that continues long after that, which is fundamentally driven by people's experience of faith. Their religion matters to them. That's why they're willing to die for it and willing to kill for it. And unless we're able to approach the subject through the intense seriousness with which they take it, then I think we're going to struggle to grasp what's going on.
0: Peter, Alec, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedules to speak with us. I hope you both have a wonderful day. Thank Thank you you very much. much.